Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the pioneering pictures of John Beasley Green. My first guest is Corey Keller, the curator of Signs and Wonders, the photographs of John Beasley Green. It's on view at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art through January 5th. Green, an American who was raised in France, brought photography to archaeology, melding the two fields at a time when each was in its infancy. His pictures of archaeological sites in Egypt and Algeria are important to both disciplines. Green died at 24, leaving behind few written records that might have explained his goals or intentions. Keller is a leading scholar of how early photography and other emergent disciplines drafted off of each other in the mid-19th century. For example, her 2008 exhibition, Brought to Light, Photography and the Invisible, 1840-1900, looked at how science and photography aided each other in their formative decades. It was a great show, and I still use that exhibition catalog all the time. The exhibition catalog for John Beasley Green was published by Delmonico Prestel. It's also terrific. Amazon offers it for $38. On the second segment, Out of Bounds, the collected writings of Marcia Tucker. As you may know, Tucker was a curator at the Whitney Museum of American Art before going on to found the new museum. But first, Corey Keller, after the break. The de Young Museum is using modern and contemporary art to recontextualize historic works from its collection in Specters of Disruption, on view now. Unfolding among several galleries throughout the museum, Specters of Disruption draws out patterns of disruption related to the museum's colonial and geological background and connects them to current conditions in the Bay Area and the evolving dialogues within American art histories. Explore disruption as manifested within nature, history, myth, culture, and technology Inspectors of Disruption, on view now at the DeYoung Museum until November 10th. Visit deyoungmuseum.org for details. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Art for a New Understanding, Native Voices, 1950s to Now, the first exhibition to chart the development of contemporary indigenous art in the United States and Canada. For generations, Native North American artists have exhibited work mostly outside of mainstream art institutions. Native Voices begins to remedy that division presenting approximately 60 works of art in a wide variety of media by Native American artists from many nations and regions. The exhibition examines the practices and perspectives of the most influential Native artists and their important contributions to American art, thus reassessing the place of indigenous art within the art historical canon. On view August 29th through January 12th, 2020, at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu voices. Opening October 8th at the Getty Center, Manet and Modern Beauty, the first exhibition ever to explore the last years of painter Edward Manet's short life. Stylish portraits, luscious still lifes, delicate pastels and watercolors, and vivid cafe and garden scenes convey Manet's elegant Parisian social world and reveal his growing fascination with fashion, flowers, and the contemporary trappings of femininity. Learn more about this major exhibition and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. And we're back. Corey Keller, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. Before we get to John Beasley Green, the subject of your show, I think we should quickly set up his world and its interests. So what instigated 19th century Europe's interest in Egypt and secondarily Algeria? In the 
late, at the very end of the 18th century, 1798, so Napoleon had been in, had invaded Egypt with his army. But in addition to bringing military soldiers, he also had this, they called it an army of savants. They had scientists and they had engineers and they had artists, about 500 of them, who went all over Egypt and drew pictures, took measurements, jotted down notes about the flora and the fauna and had done a real study of, of Egypt. Um, and they were there for almost three years. Then, of course, the British came in and the British burned Napoleon's fleet in the, in the harbor. And it was a, a terrible defeat for the French. The French had to give up one of many of the things, the artifacts that they had found, the British took possession, including a stone tablet, which we now know as the Rosetta Stone. And, but the French retained molds of the stone as well as drawings. And when they got back to France, they were able to keep those records. And in 1822, they were able to decipher the hieroglyphic text, which was the key to unlocking this history of Egypt that had not been unlocked before. I am not an, an Egyptologist, and I know that there's quite a lot of controversy about who, in fact, was actually responsible for doing the decipherment. There was also a British scholar who was working on it, but Champollion is the name that's usually associated with that. And so this, you know, Napoleon's invasion of, of Egypt and his retreat, and then the publication of these volumes of drawings and texts about Egypt sparked both popular interest in Egypt as well as a scientific interest in Egypt. In Algeria, it was slightly different. It comes a little bit later, but the French colonized Algeria in 1837, so two years before photography was invented. And the late 1830s, you see the French expanding their territorial province from the coast of Algeria further and further inland. And that was uh, quite frequently a fairly brutal, brutal um, military undertaking. But so the interest in Algeria was slightly, slightly more territorial and colonial. Egypt, of course, also colonial, but they didn't, were not actually in control there. So that's Egypt, that's Algeria. Next up, John Beasley Green, the subject of uh, the exhibition and and the book. John Beasley Green is an American, but he's in France. How uh, how does he come to be in France? And then how does he how does being in France, as well as his family's background, get him to photography? Well, interestingly, Green is an American, even though he, as far as we know, never set foot in the United States. He was born near Le Havre, uh, my pronunciation, that word I cannot pronounce, but the port, <laughs> the port in France. He was born in a, in a suburb of it called Angouville, which was, had this, where the sort of wealthy merchant bankers had summer homes. And his father was from New Hampshire originally. His mother was from Philadelphia, but of French descent. And they, they actually met in France, but his father came to France to set up banking interests there. And he worked with an important American banker, Samuel Wells. And when Wells died, um, he took over the bank, which became Green and & Company and was moved to Paris. And they were the most important American bank in France at that time. And so the Green family was very wealthy. And in order to be either a photographer or an archaeologist at that point, one, one needed to be wealthy because those kinds of things were self-financed. And so that gave the young John Beasley Green the means to take up both archaeology and photography around the age of 20 or 21. 
And once Green decided to take up photography, he, and no doubt his father's pocketbook, picked someone under whom to study. Who was that? So he studied with Gustave Le Gray, who was the most influential teacher of photography in France. And we know we know that he studied with, with Le Gray because there's an article written about Le Gray in 1860 in which the biographer writes of all his illustrious students. Le Gray, as far as I know, didn't keep actual rosters, but there is an article in which they mention all the people you know, who studied with Le Gray, including Green. And they said, you know, Green died of his ardor in Egypt. <laughs> I, lo- I love the 19th century. I know. It was like victim of his ardor, I think was how they described it. And so that was, it's important that he studied with Le Gray for a number of reasons. One is that he learned the technique of the waxed paper negative, which was Le Gray's, one of Le Gray's many contributions to the photographic medium. I always describe it to people as if you've ever eaten a sandwich and dripped oil on the paper that the sandwich was written, uh, was wrapped on, in, the paper becomes both oily and translucent. And that's the effect of applying beeswax to a sheet of writing paper. So it meant that paper negatives were much more see-through, but they were also portable. So if you wanted to go to Egypt, portable paper negatives would have been a heck of a lot easier than glass plates, which was the other option. But the other, the other thing that he would have learned from Le Gray was the sort of aesthetic discourses that were circulating around photography. I mean, one of the reasons I'm interested in photography at this particular point is because, you know, they were still hammering out what this new medium was. Is it a technology? Is it a science? Is it an art? If it's an art, how does it relate to other kinds of art, like painting or printmaking or anything that's a kind of reproductive technique and, you know, engraving or lithography? And so, you know, the there were still a lot of conversations about what photography was, where it ranked among the arts, what rightful place it could assume. And Le Gray had very specific ideas about, about that, which Green would have absorbed. So we have Green, we have Green and photography. The one missing thing, I guess, is Green and his interest in archaeology. What what do we know uh, about it, and would that have been a normal thing for someone of his background to have gravitated toward? The great challenge with, with researching Green is that because he died very young, he left almost no papers behind. He left only a few tracks, a couple of letters, but I mean, it's just a handful of documents. And so we know almost nothing about what his actual motivations were. So all the evidence is is rather circumstantial, but what we can do is we can connect him to a circle of archaeologists, Egyptologists actually, who are extremely influential and well-placed. So that tells us that either through his social connections or through his education, which again is a little bit of a mystery, that he knew all the right people. He knew Auguste Mariette, who was excavating at Giza, the Sphinx. He knew Emmanuel de Rouget, who was a curator at the Louvre and one of the sort of Champollion's um, scholarly heir. He knew a lot of people in the right places, and he was a member of two societies 
one of which the Asiat, I guess, Societe Asiatique, he would have had to have had real language abilities and you know scholarly chops to be admitted. It wasn't it wasn't for amateurs. So that tells us that he was serious, that he was taken seriously by his peers, but we don't know more than that about where his interest comes from. But I would imagine that for a curious young man and socially connected, that Egypt, I mean, Egypt was of great interest to everybody. And so he actually had the means to pursue those interests. So we have an understanding here of, of Green, his world, and his interests. Um, let's begin to get into the pictures. Second plate in the book is a picture that suggests a little bit about how how Green and Legray worked in proximity, if you will. What is what is that picture? What does it show us, and and what makes it kind of extra cool? Well, one of the things that I wanted to include in the show were some of his actual paper negatives. He didn't make very many prints of the photographs he took while he was studying in France, but some of the negatives have survived. And this one shows the Arc de Triomphe. It shows us the bas-relief sculpture on the, I don't know what you call it, the leg of the Arc de Triomphe that was carved by Francois Rude. And we know that Le Gray had a commission, an important commission to photograph those sculptures. And what you see is not only the Arc de Triomphe, but in the foreground, you see a small uh, box camera on a tripod clearly pointed at the sculpture. You can see that it's tilted up. We'll have the image on manpodcast.com. Yeah, it's tilted up at and clearly pointed at the sculpture. So it seems quite likely. I mean, other photographers did photograph this, but not too many. But it, because of Green's connections to Le Gray, and we know that he photographed with Le Gray on other occasions, it seems quite likely that Green accompanied Le Gray on the commission and that that camera is, in fact, Le Gray's. What I also love is if you look very closely you you can see that the camera is um, almost transparent, which tells us that it was either put there or removed halfway through the exposure, the long exposure, giving LeGray enough time to put the camera in or take it away. You can actually see right through it. It's ghostly in the most ghostly of ways. And of course, in the decades, um, you know, I don't mean to suggest that it starts with this picture, but in the decades thereafter, photographers would love, love, love leaving these little leaving their cameras or their other apparatuses in their pictures. Another place that Legray introduces to Green or takes Green is Fontainebleau, the forests the forest south of Paris. In 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 these years in the mid nineteenth century, both painters and photographers flocked there. The National Gallery and the Museum of Fine Arts Houston did a fine show about this in two thousand eight. What did Green learn there and do you think there's anything he takes from his experience there into North Africa? Well, so what he would have learned there, I mean, Fontainebleau by this point, it's synonymous with landscape in France. And, land, you know, landscape painting had always been one of the lower genres of, of painting. But in this period, it becomes elevated to a, a real point of artists are really trying to perfect the representation of nature. And Fontainebleau was a wonderful subject because it was very close to Paris. You could get there on the train. But it also had this incredibly varied terrain, these enormous oaks and beaches, beech trees that were just 
as old as France itself, it seemed. And these very strange rock formations, dense forests, sandy paths, all kinds of different conditions for making pictures. And painters certainly exploited that in their work, really paying attention to the, the variations of nature. And the photographers did the same. And you can see in the works that Green made in Fontainebleau that he's also experimenting with how do you represent nature and, and the landscape. And this was something that Le Gray was quite passionate about and made many pictures at Fontainebleau. And when you look at the kinds of landscapes that Green made in Egypt or in Algeria, it's not too hard to see the lessons that Le Gray would have taught him there, although he had to adapt them rather dramatically to a very different landscape. Both, both Egypt and Algeria had very distinctive landscapes, and both of them very different from France. There's a picture from 1853 in the show known as Forest of Fontainebleau, in which we, I would say we can kind of see green playing with texture and depth and playing leaves off of trunks and playing with these differences. Are those examples of him taking things he's learning or playing with in France into North Africa? I think so. And actually, one of the things I love about that particular picture is that Le Gray made one that's almost identical. And if you look very, very carefully in Le Gray's picture, you will see another photographer's camera in, in the picture. It's very hard to find. But um, if you look, you'll find it. And it's probably greens. And so I love, I love those kinds of little mysteries. But in this picture, you see there's almost no horizon. He's filled up the entire frame with foliage and branches. And then you just see the way the sun filters through the leaves and through the branches to create these beautiful shapes and patterns. When he gets to Egypt, of course, it's all big skies and empty deserts, and he has to uh, you know, adapt his uh, approach. But when he gets to Algeria, he's faced with a very similar kind of sort of natural environment. And you see pictures that look much more like the ones he made in Fontainebleau. The last of his, of, of, of his Parisian pictorial interests that you include in the show is a picture of uh, a statuette of a reproduction, if you will, of the Venus de Milo. Why would Green have photographed sculpture and statuary and will it become important later on? Yeah, if this one goes missing out of the show, you'll know where to find it. It'll be on my wall at home. I love this picture. And it's one of four that Green made where he turned the statue in and photographed her in the round, which is, you know, a training exercise. I mean, it is at its heart a training exercise. He's taken a plaster figurine statuette of the Venus of Milo. He's propped up what looks like a piece of wood or a piece of cloth behind it to create a neutral backdrop. But of course, he hasn't cropped it in. So um, you can see the edges of the backdrop, which is so modern looking and so interesting, which also tells us he really wasn't interested in making a picture in that way. He's just interested in his subject. But of course, today we can't help but look at this with different eyes. So this picture for me, you know, which is probably just a simple student exercise that Legray gave him to do, crystallize so many different ideas. So first, he's photographing the Venus de Milo, which is an archaeological artifact, which was given, you know, found in, I can't know, I can't remember, I think Sardinia, someplace like that, and brought as a quote-unquote gift to the Louvre 
in in the early 1800s. So, you know, when you go to the Louvre and you see the Venus de Milo, you tend to think that it's been there forever, you know, because it goes all the way back to the Greeks. But in fact, it was a contemporary artifact at that time. And so it was something that people were aware of as an addition to the Louvre's massive collection of antiquities. So to me, it talked about this collection of, you know, this uh, passion for collecting artifacts. And I use the word collecting loosely. On the other hand, the white sculpture is the perfect subject for a photography student, right? It's not going to move. Exposures are long. You need something that's going to hold still. And because photographing in monochrome, um, it's not colored. So it's all about shape and shadow and light and form, which Green is really exploring here. And then there's this sort of culture of reproduction because it's not the Venus de Milo. It's a plaster, a plaster reproduction scaled for a domestic market. I mean, every museum or art school at that point worth their salt had a, a collection of plaster uh, reproductions of the works of antiquity for art students to draw from. But there was also a market for even smaller ones for people to be able to have these great works of art in their home. And I love this idea of the plaster cast as a form of industrial um, reproduction of a great singular work of art, which is, of course, also what a photograph is doing. If you're making a negative from which you can make multiple prints, you're talking about this quality of reproduction. So it felt like these all of these different ideas come together in what is really the simplest most elegant photograph. It's really was, it just unlocked for me so many ideas about what it was he was doing. And then you can't help but look at his photographs of things like the Colossus of Memnon, which of course you couldn't bring home, but he also, he, I'm sure they would have tried, but it, he didn't, but he also photographed it in the round and in different settings, which gives it a different form from all different directions. Well, I have this picture on, on manpodcast.com. It looks astonishingly like, for example, Sarah Vanderbeek from 170 years later. You mentioned Egypt a moment ago. In 1852, Green decides to go there. What are the circumstances of that trip? Does he just pack up and, and land on the shores of the Nile and there he is? Or was there a little more to it? Well, it's pretty interesting. So in in late, I think it was October 1852, he writes to the um, at the Académie des Inscriptions et Belles Lettres, which is one of the five academies of the the French academies, and this was the one that concerned itself with the Near East and with textual sources. And he writes and he says, I'm going to Egypt to make photographic records. Would you care to give me some instructions? And that was how one got one's expedition sort of legitimated by the um, scholarly authority. And Maxime Ducamp had done similarly a few years prior, but three years prior. And the academy actually said, they didn't they declined to give him instructions it's not clear if he actually went anyway the trip sounds like it was very rushed and he if he went that winter he didn't take any pictures but there are records of fellow travelers on the nile encountering a young man john green on the Nile that winter so it does i mean circumstantial evidence would suggest that he went that winter, but he's, if he did, he didn't take any pictures. So the following winter, he certainly went, this time without requesting instructions, and he went and made several hundred photographs. And when he came back, 
after about four months, he made two albums, which he presented to the Academy, even though they had not given him formal instructions for his work there. So let's talk about those. He makes, over the course of these three trips, or two trips and maybe three trips, over 300 negatives, and he prints about a little under 200 of them, I think. He categorizes them. What does his categorization of these pictures suggest about how Green was considering these photographs might be or might, might live or what they could or should be? For starters, it tells us that he was intentional about what he was doing, that he knew that there were certain kinds of pictures that certain kind of audiences would want. So he assigned each negative a, a letter, M for monuments, P for paysage, which is French for landscape, and I for inscription, and a number. And so it tells us that he was sort of compartmentalizing the kind of work he was doing. Sometimes he would photograph the same temple, one with a monument number, one with a landscape number, and one with an inscription number, or sometimes multiple in each of those categories. So it tells us that, you know, what every picture he took, he was thinking about what its purpose was and, and what his audience might need from that picture. And so that is not the work of a haphazard tourist who is just wandering through Egypt seeing interesting things. What's interesting is that if you look at, at the kinds of pictures, he, even though he didn't get instructions from the Academy, Maxime Ducamp, who had gone before him, did. And a lot of Green's subject matter seems to conform to those instructions, So, which suggests that he had some information from the Academy about what it is they would have liked to have seen, or that he had talked to Ducamp, which is also possible. But the landscape work seems to have been mostly for himself, because that was not something the Academy had requested from, from Ducamp. And and it doesn't necessarily fit any scholarly or archaeological needs. And so it's a little hard to know what it was he was doing, but it was a very important category of work for him. He made many of them. So it's clearly something that he was serious about. Leaving the landscapes aside for a moment, we'll come back to them. What is he photographing? What are some some of the most representative examples of what of what he's showing us? Well, he starts in Giza at the pyramids and where he photographs the excavations of Auguste Mariette. And those are slightly um, unusual pictures in that at least one of them has people in them, which is very unusual in his work. But it right away tells us that this interest in archaeology is real. Mariette was pretty protective of his work and would not have let just anybody come into his dig site and photograph it. So the fact that Green does so tells us that he was you know, part of this community Community. Let me kind of interrupt you for just a sec about that picture that has people in it. It is called or known as Mr. Marriott's site excavation to the left of the Sphinx. And we see a, a tunnel or a, an entry into a burial chamber or what have you um, in the lower left of the picture. And we see three or four or five or six people standing around it. And in the top middle of the picture, we see, takes us a second to see it, but we see uh, the head of the Sphinx. What's on top of the head of the Sphinx in that picture, and what might it suggest? And there is a flag planted on the head of the Sphinx. It's impossible to see. I know it's it's just a remarkable detail. It's impossible to see whose flag it is. And in another view where Green has taken a view of the Sphinx, which couldn't have been more than a day or so, you know, 
later, the flag is not there. So it doesn't seem to have been a permanent fixture. But when you read that one picture all together, you have this definite sense of claiming the claiming this ancient monument i mean i have to assume it's a french flag but um you can't you can't really read it it's an extraordinary picture but also uh, it's also a total outlier in green's in green's work so we have him here uh, uh at an excavation uh, this remarkable picture of of the sphinx um with a pyramid uh just behind it what are his some of his archaeological interests and how do we see them? Well, he seems to have, I mean, he seems to have known enough about which were the temples of particular interest to the scholarly community to focus his attention there. So he made, I mean, the variety of views he made are, are both beautiful and amazing. For example, this picture of the pyramids and the sphinx. I'm not sure that those add anything to archaeological knowledge, except for to provide this extraordinary view of the monuments as they were in their setting. Other pictures are less pictorially interesting, but more full of uh, information. Um, he went, for example, to the temple of Medinet Habu and made, I think, 43 views there, almost exclusively records of the inscriptions that covered the walls. And most of them are not very interesting as pictures, in fact. But what he's doing is really important work because otherwise to copy down all of those hieroglyphics, someone would have had to sit there and make a drawing. Um, and what he's doing is to provide pictorial records so that they can be translated back in France. The pictures range from views of temples in their natural settings to close-ups of the architecture to detailed records of the inscriptions, which was a main concern of archaeologists at that point, the study of philology. One question about one of those pictures of, uh, of hieroglyphs. It's a stela that was at the base of the Sphinx where the stela fills half-ish of, of, of the frame and it's almost bisected by a shadow. The shadow would seem to render two-thirds or a third of the thing illegible. What, what, why? <laughs> well, this was actually, I mean, this was the main problem. Um, it does render it illegible, and it's not the only place that that happened. In order to get the carvings to stand out, he would have had to use raking light. And he talked about, uh, in in the few pieces of correspondence, he talked about how he photographed either early in the morning or late in the afternoon in order to get the light at an angle. And sure enough, it was, and he talked about how difficult it was to photograph in so many of these places because of the shadows that were cast. And this is a big piece of stone. There was no way he was going to be able to move it. Um, he did find a solution, actually, which he didn't describe very well and caused quite a brouhaha in the press. He made plaster molds of some of these inscriptions that were in areas that were too dark to be photographed. And that was a pretty common archaeological practice at that time. But then he photographed the plaster molds. He tinted them and then photographed them, which meant you didn't have to uh, schlep around the plaster molds. You had a photograph of it in a place where taking a photograph of the actual object was essentially impossible. Of course, this got blown up into some uh, article about how Green had invented a method of taking photographs in the dark, which he had to clear up later. <laughs> but it was, it was the greatest challenge was making evenly lit photographs. 
Now, of course, we now tend to appreciate them pictorially because that beautiful shadow falls in this diagonal right across the picture and it makes the composition. But it was, I assume, almost entirely unintentional and probably undesirable. There are a couple dozen pictures in the show of temples and related surviving ruins, if you will, in the show. Are there any that are, oh, I don't know, particular favorites of yours or that you think are particularly noteworthy? Uh, one of my absolute favorites is the uh, photograph of the temple at Esabua, but it is an extraordinary picture because the temple is almost entirely buried in sand. Oh, it's a plate number 20, so Wadi Esabua. And the temple is almost entirely buried in sand, and there are these two enormous statues, although you can't tell from this picture just how enormous they are, who are buried up to their knees in sand. And they look like they're kind of, I mean, it looks almost like a science fiction movie, like these enormous things have come to life and are walking towards you across the sand. The horizon is so low, so it's almost all sky. And the only thing that breaks the horizon is this sort of pylon of the temple. And it's just such an extraordinary picture. It, You can imagine from looking at this, you can feel almost viscerally what it would be like to encounter a temple like this in the sand. I've seen pictures of what it looks like now where it's fully excavated and those sculptures are clearly not walking on sand. They have pedestals and, and it's such a different experience. But there's sort of this unbelievable stillness and otherworldliness that I think really characterizes a lot of his pictures. That's one of a couple of his pictures that remind me of Humphrey Lloyd Himes, pictures from the Canadian Plains, um, where the scale is impossible to understand, but there's enough detailed specificity that after a few moments of looking, things begin to, oh my gosh, how about that? Yeah. No, and he's very funny because, you know, like Ducamp, he was in Egypt in 1849 uh, and published his photographs in 1851. So Green would have seen them. And Ducamp was notorious for using either one of the Nubian sailors on his ship or his Maltese valet as a uh, essentially a prop in every one of his pictures, which, as Ducamp explained, gave a uniform sense of scale. And Green seems to have gone out of his way to exclude the human presence. There are lots of ways he could have indicated scale in these pictures. And it seems for whatever reason, he chose not to. I mean, certainly it wasn't easy to photograph people at that time, but um, Ducan had done it three years earlier. So it was clearly possible if he had decided that that was important. The pictures of the portals. Yeah. I mean, you have just no idea how big some of these things are. And as a result, you also have no idea like where in time and space they have this sort of out of time feeling that's kind of extraordinary. Sometimes if you look closely enough, you can see that there were actually people, but they were moving. So they just don't show up as part of the picture. But it was clear that that was not an important aspect of his work to him. One of the things he does is he gets far away from temples or objects as he does in the picture you were just describing. And sometimes he gets real close. Do you have any guesses, ideas about about what he's doing here, what he's playing with. Is, are, are his interests pi- primarily pictorial? Are they archaeological? Is he counterbalancing the two? I think in the ones where he's close, he really is trying to record the hieroglyphics on those surfaces. I mean, if you look at plate 50 of the wall of Medinet Habu, this extraordinary picture from the collection of the, the Metropolitan Museum, which is just 
corner to corner, edge to edge text. And it's an extraordinary picture. He wrote about how difficult these pictures were to make because the text was under a sort of a colonnaded portico and there wasn't enough light and the, the ground, as he described it, was very uneven. So they were very difficult to make. And so the inclusion of this column at the left-hand edge is probably because he couldn't take the picture without it there. But of course, it adds this extraordinary pictorial aspect. Yeah, there's a woman on the column, and she's then the the column is curving away from us. But I have to assume that what he's really interested in there is the text on the wall that's behind the column as he's tried to record it. But of course, you know, we look at a picture like this today, and we see all kinds of, you know all kinds of other kinds of art that have come afterward with this all over composition and this edge to edge detail. It's pretty extraordinary, but I think that those are fairly accidental. Or if you look at plate 26, where he's, we know for sure that he was trying to record the inscriptions on the wall at the temple of Dhaka and half of the picture, at least half of it is completely obscured in shadow. But the hieroglyphics that we can see are very clearly rendered. And the shadow today makes it look so modern, but that was just, you know, what do you call it, sort of collateral damage in the, in the effort to get one part of the picture exposed properly, the rest couldn't be. You mentioned that the other thing he did in Egypt was landscapes. What types of landscapes is he making and any guesses as to why? I, the landscapes that he made in Egypt are uniformly spare. He plays a lot with the horizon line, quite frequently putting it very low in the frame. And at the time, you negatives were very sensitive to blue light. So skies were a particular problem for exposure. And they look, well, they often look blank or worse, they looked all mottled because um, they didn't expose evenly. And so 19th century photographers, particularly working on paper, would have painted the sky with an opaque gouache on the negatives to block it out completely. So as a result, the skies are almost completely white and they become a game almost of balancing proportions of land to sky and the contours of that land. But the series I like the best are the ones he did at the second cataract of the Nile, which was as far south as any traveler those days would have gone. It's, it's now, uh, I think, below the border of modern-day Egypt in, in Sudan. And they're so raw and rough, the texture of the rock. And the water is strangely still because it was moving so fast. But he also made these gorgeous pictures of just the rocky hillsides around them, which most, this hillside in particular, most travelers described as the perfect viewpoint for looking at the cataracts. But he, of course, went the other direction and, and photographed the rocks in the desert itself. And it's just all texture and, and balance between uh, negative and positive space. One of these landscapes is the cover of the book. Did you pick it? I did pick it. I picked it. It's a funny one because it's a beautiful, almost abstract view of an island, uh, an island in the Nile. And it's just sort of a band of dark island and a tiny little scruff of palm trees. And actually, we blew the picture up to use as a, dec as a sort of a 
graphic in the exhibition, and there's a boat in there that I couldn't see before. It's a really beautiful picture, and it's the picture that if you know green a little, this might be the one you know. And and so I thought it was important to pick a familiar picture, but also one that combines, that really focuses on this aptitude for photographic vision and land the representation of, of landscape. And it's such a incredibly minimal picture. And the funny thing is that it's become more minimal over time because many of the prints have faded slightly around the edges. So the, dark, the center remains dark and the edges have gotten even lighter. But it's a truly beautiful picture. These are all salted paper prints. The last Egypt picture uh, in the book and, and possibly in the installation is a picture of a block of homes that is just the most wonderfully irregular grid one can imagine. Why did he take it and what might it offer to us now? It's a fascinating picture because very few of Green's photographs concern contemporary life. And although today the photograph looks old, it was a it was considered contemporary at the time. And it's a view of the kinds of beautiful windows that they had in Cairo, these elaborately carved wooden lattices that in, uh, encased bay windows. And they were used to cool the homes of the wealthy while also affording a very private view out onto the street. Europeans in particular were very taken with these kinds of windows because they frequently, they thought they suggested the windows of harems or women's quarters. So they had a, the Europeans were interested in them because they had this kind of exotic associations. Why Green took the, we don't know. I don't know. You know, it wasn't part of the work that he submitted to the Academy. he did include it in an album that he made as a gift for the Grand Duke of Baden-Baden. And that album contains more pictures that, to my mind, look like they would have been interesting to a sort of armchair traveler. They have more pictures of Cairo and pictures of the Sphinx and the pyramids, many fewer decisively archaeological pictures. And so, I mean, it's possible that Green himself was just struck by how beautiful they were, but also that there might be an audience for that kind of picture back home. But it's a, it's a, it's a stunning picture. Last question on Egypt. These are, um, you know, black and white, if you will, pictures. They're, they're not, there's no color. There is in the 1850s, and especially as we get into the 1860s, a thriving trade in paintings of, uh, of, of of Egypt. What might we think about or should we think about uh, in terms of the relationship between the pictorial record and the pictorial compositions, the green offers, and the way Parisians and others would have experienced all of those paintings? Well, I have a really hard time imagining what someone would have thought when they saw one of Green's photographs if they had been at all exposed to Orientalist painting, um, which was rich and lush and, you know, these sort of jewel tone palettes. Or And I included in the book as a comparison picture a painting by Narcisse Bercher of the same colossi that Green photographed. And I actually came across this painting while I was walking through the galleries of the Met. And I just stopped in my tracks because the painting, the two statues are in this beautiful floodplain covered with green grass. There are pink flamingos strolling around and cows grazing. I mean, it it's such a different view. And Green's photographs are stark 
and harsh. You sent you you sense dry sand and and textured rock, and um, this kind of austerity. There's an austerity to them that is the opposite of what Orientalist painting was was providing. And I really don't. I have not read any accounts in which people complained about. <laughs> I mean, but I would imagine that they would have. I mean, if you had seen those kinds of paintings of Egypt and someone came back with this kind of photographs, I would think that they would be completely disbelieving because they're completely at odds, uh, at least in terms of uh, pictorial qualities, um, the tonality and the, the textures. It's really remarkable. Of course, not so much in Green's work, but in other photographers in Egypt and the Middle East, they, they of course, regularly conjured the same kinds of themes that the painters did, whether it was getting women to sit in, you know, veiled women or more exotic kinds of subject matter. The photographers certainly were on to the same market that the painters were on. But Green doesn't seem to have been so interested in that. When and why does he go to Algeria? Well, we don't know why exactly. This is <laughs> this is the answer to almost every question anyone asks me about Green. I don't know why. I can make some conjectures. So he goes in the winter in December of or very early January of 1855, and he his first stop is the archaeological expedition of uh, Adrian Berbruger, who's excavating this strange burial mound called the. Tombeau de la Chrétienne, or a tomb of the Christian woman. I assume that Berbruger invited him there to photograph because Berbruger seems to have known his work in Egypt, but there's no correspondence to uh, corroborate that because that's where Green goes when he lands. I, I have to assume that's what it was. And Green would have been interested in this excavation because the tomb, which is this sort of mound, very large mound-shaped structure, Nobody could agree on who had built it or who was buried inside, but what was rumored was that it was the daughter of Cleopatra and Mark Antony and her husband, King Juba II, and so that would have been something that Green would have been interested in. He takes some pictures in Algeria that recall the Egypt work, such as the false doors of tombs of a tomb, but also a whole lot of pictures that are nothing like the Egypt pictures. Yeah, well, you can see the landscape is very different. He also, I think, has a different camera at this point, which is allowing him to photograph in a different way. It's very interesting because, you know, you would think as someone who is interested in archaeology that Algeria would have been you know, the best place on earth. Algeria is covered with Roman ruins and Roman artifacts. But he seems, and and there was a very active French archaeological community there. Um, but he doesn't seem to have been interested in that at all. The only kinds of archaeological pictures he made in Algeria pretty dis distinctively um, deal only with Egyptian Egyptian topics, and the rest are landscapes, and they look very different from from Egypt, where he has these low horizons and big skies. In Algeria, where so much was built on top of cliffs, he has very high horizons and almost no sky, and he sort of invents a different language for the, the landscape he encountered there. They're some of my favorite pictures. The last Algerian picture I want to ask about um, is uh, a picture of a cave on the bank of a river. I can't look at it without thinking of Corbet. Is it possible that Green himself is thinking about Corbet? Anything is possible. I don't have any. I don't have any. I don't have any evidence 
to either support or contradict that assertion, but certainly he was trained in the representation of, of you know, of realism. I mean, photographic realism and the, re- and the representation of nature, those lessons he would have learned from Le Gray, and they clearly come through. Those pictures are remarkable. I don't have any idea why he took them, except for that he must have simply been struck by the by the landscape there. But they're really, between the banks of the river and the waterfalls, they're some just extraordinary pictures. The waterfalls are really unusual. I, I, I've had the book for six weeks or something now, and I still don't quite know what to do with the waterfalls. They are They are zoomed in, if you will. I mean, he's standing really close to the waterfalls, and he's filling almost the entire frame of each of these pictures with the waterfall and its and what it's falling over or through almost like he had to cover every inch of the plate with as much as he could i mean it's i obviously still don't know what to do with them <laughs> i mean i i look at them and you know the pictures in egypt other photographers had been there and so you know, you can sort of tell that in a couple places, there was a certain place that was the best place to stand, or maybe the only place to stand in order to get a view. With Algeria, because there really aren't any precedents, I don't know. For all I know is that he has to stand on the bank of the river, and that's the best he can, you know, that's the only view he can get without being in the middle of the river. I don't know. It could very well be a, a effect of just practical choices. But the the pictorial effect of whatever choices is amazing. I love that one picture with the triangle that's just sort of excised. This this is a sort of triangle of sky that looks like it's just cut out of the rock in the upper left hand corner. And again, there's no nothing to explain these pictures, why he took them, who he thought they were for. He he died before anything could be done with these pictures, or maybe he never intended to do anything with them. We don't know. We we should certainly wrap up by by killing off Green. So yeah, yeah, we have him in Algeria in 1856. He, uh, he dies that November. What do we know about about his passing? Well, we know he went back to he went back to Paris in May because he published an article about this Egyptian sculpture that he photographed in Algeria, and and then we know that by November he's back in Cairo and he dies shortly thereafter, um, at the age of 24. It's most likely that he died of tuberculosis. It was the number one cause of death in 19th century France. And one of the letters describing his death said that he went to Egypt, that when he left Paris, he was already gravely ill, and that he went to Egypt for the climate that had cured him once before. Cairo in Egypt was widely recommended by European doctors as a a place that one could go to cure tuberculosis and other pulmonary diseases. Some people want to suggest it could be some other disease, but my dad's a doctor, and he always taught me that when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. And given, <laughs> and he would be very proud of me that I remember that. And given, given that, I mean, how many people died of tuberculosis and how common Egypt was as a site for people went seeking a cure, I, and we know it was a a disease that would have theoretically improved in its climate. I have to assume it was tuberculosis. Corey Keller, thank you. Always a pleasure, Tyler. Thank you so much.
With the fall exhibition season about to begin, I'm thrilled to announce two upcoming live audience Modern Art Notes podcast tapings. First up is a program with the artist Tiffany Chung at the Sheldon Museum of Art in Lincoln, Nebraska. Chung is one of three artists in the Sheldon's ongoing exhibition, Unquiet Harmony, the Subject of Displacement, a show which examines how artists have engaged with issues surrounding migration. We'll be taping at the museum on Wednesday, September 25th at 5.30 p.m. Then on Tuesday, October 15th, I'll be at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth to talk with Robin O'Neill about We the Masses, a survey of O'Neill's 20 years of art making that opens at the Modern that week. Our conversation will begin at 7 p.m. Hope to see you all there. And if anyone comes to both tapings, in Lincoln and Fort Worth, let me know and we'll be sure to come up with some kind of prize. The de Young Museum is using modern and contemporary art to recontextualize historic works from its collection in Specters of Disruption, on view now. Unfolding among several galleries throughout the museum, Specters of Disruption draws out patterns of disruption related to the museum's colonial and geological background and connects them to current conditions in the Bay Area and the evolving dialogues within American art histories. Explore disruption as manifested within nature, history, myth, culture, and technology in Specters of Disruption, on view now at the DeYoung Museum until November 10th. Visit deyoungmuseum.org for details. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents More Like a Forest, Paintings and Sculptures by Richard Allen Morris at its downtown location through October 27th. This presentation, comprising a sculptural series from the artist's collection, as well as paintings drawn from the museum's own holdings, highlights Morris's ceaseless transformation of ordinary materials into extraordinary creations. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Wexner Center for the Arts Director, Joanna Burton. She joins me to discuss Out of Bounds, the Collected Writings of Marcia Tucker. Along with Lisa Phillips and Alicia Ritson, Burton co-edited the volume with assistance from Kate Weiner. The book includes a broad range of Tucker's writing, from essays about artists to lectures she gave about issues in art and in the art museum field. Many of the writings are published here for the very first time. Out of Bounds was published by the Getty Research Institute and the New Museum. Amazon sells it for $38. Go get it. It's really terrific. Joanna Burton, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. You came to be involved with this book while working at the New Museum. Of course, you're now at the Wexner. This is a project about a Whitney curator and a new, muse, new museum director that was published by the Getty. Before we get into the specifics of the book, how and why did, did the project come together? It was really a, a kind of wonderful confluence of, of different uh, details. So as you probably know, uh, in 2017, the new museum turned 40, uh, which is a kind of amazing thing to think about, uh, an institution that was so formidable, I think, in, in really kind of setting the terms for contemporary art and, and how contemporary institutions work. Around that time, Lisa had been kind of sitting and marinating on a project that she had hoped to do for the last couple of decades. Lisa being Lisa Phillips, the director of the museum. Lisa Phillips, the director of the new museum. So since Marcia Tucker passed away in about 2006, she had been, you may have read her memoir, which was kind of an incredible piece of writing as well. 
And she had been simultaneously hoping to put out a book of collected writings, but that failed to come together before she passed away. And she'd been working on that with a grad student who put a lot of work into this current configuration. His name was Tucker Neal, is Tucker Neal. Also Liza Liu, who worked with her on the, the memoir and a number of other people. So there was a loose template for what this book was meant to be. It was already called Out of Bounds, which is the, the title that we stuck with. We couldn't think of anything better. And so this thing had kind of floated around. Um, I'd, I'd looked at records of it. There, there were files of correspondence with Dean, Marsha's husband, who actually subsequently has also passed away. Everyone wanted to see this book happen, and there just there wasn't the right moment. And Lisa Phillips, again, was in the middle of the renovation of the building, the Bowery. And when I came, which was about 2012, 2013, I began a really pretty rigorous, with um, the blessing of the museum, of course, arm of, of research, scholarship, and public publications. And this resurfaced as something that Lisa was excited to do, and, and I had both the fortitude and the hunger to, to get on board. So it's a project that feels really timely, but also was on the back burner for 20 years, really. And so we were lucky to have partners at the Getty who hold her papers. We spent a lot of time at the Getty unearthing things that hadn't been published or multiple versions of both lectures and, and written text. And the stars aligned and we brought it together just in time to celebrate the 40th. You mentioned Marcia Tucker's memoir. It was published by University of California Press. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. The new book is split into three sections, one called Visionaries, Artists About Whom Tucker Wrote About Fairly Early or Quite Early, often in their careers, um, a section called Expanding the Canon, which might loosely be described as Tucker applying feminism to, to her practice as a curator and as a director, and third, a section that has the most essays but not the most pages called Institutional Change, about Tucker's writings on how she moved and hoped to move the museum profession and, and museum practice. How did you and your co-editors go about deciding what went, in, what went in and what didn't make it in? Such a fun and interesting process because in looking at, at Tucker's writings, it is a kind of mirror to the way that she worked, which was all, all across the, the realm of culture, of art and culture, and really considering not only artistic practices, but all of the frameworks. So what we did is, again, there was a loose template that we started with and, and stuck with to a large degree that did group um, individual monographic uh, writings about artists, that did group kind of more thematic, what, we're, what we called expanding the canon, thematic uh, topics, and then really kind of self-reflexive texts that thought about power, institutions, and, and really kind of the hierarchy of the art world, which was the institutional change section. We played a little bit with merging these different areas and allowing the kind of chronology to show how these things were working in tandem with each other. They're, they're not separate, right? These are conversations that have to be had together. But we separated them out into three sections, each of which proceed chronologically. So you can tell the stories together, but also separately. And I think what we we're so pleased about in the end was that it's a structure that allows you to really kind of think tightly about areas of her her work and her own kind of progression as a thinker. But if you do read across the dates, which you can do in the in the TSC, for instance, you really see that she's thinking about, you know, for instance, she's, you know, writing about Pat Steer at the same time that, she, you know, she's she's only a few years before produced the, the kind of iconic 
exhibition Anti-Illusion and considering the, the topic of women in museums. So that was really a fascinating way both to allow for a kind of clarity around these different topics and also to show how interrelated and integrated they, they were. But I will say, again, to give credit where credit is due, you know, Marcia herself had already really kind of come up with this template and, and following it was interesting because we were able to make some tweaks. And I think we made some very substantial and interesting ones, but she knew what she was doing. And she was looking back at her life and her and her work with that kind of retrospective glance that is so, so interesting both to do probably as a practitioner looking at your own work and then later as an institution, the new museum that that really kind of thinks about this as its history, too. Is there an essay or are there essays that you think offer particularly good examples of her impact on the field? Yes. One could, again, point to any of the areas in, in the book and find some of those, even the monographic, what would seem to be the most kind of limited modality of writing. But I think where I get the most excited is her refusal in all of these texts to act as a voice of authority and instead to really position herself as an enabling platform for you know, messy, risk-taking, experimental ways of thinking. She's an incredibly, I don't know if you've had a chance, I, I know you know her work, but if you've had a chance to kind of read this thing through, she's a really refreshing writer. And even, I would say, and I'll talk about the, the content in a moment, but to to think through with her some of these topics with the kind of language and the kind of levity and the kind of self-reflexiveness that she employed is, is it's just it's a really brilliant way to sort of travel along with her. I would say some of the the most kind of amazing texts for me in terms of really uh, showing how she impacted the field are this text called the 10 most pressing issues in the art world today and some uncommon solutions from the 80s where she's head on talking about the politics of gender, race and sexuality. These are questions that continue to be really resonant. She never backs away from the question of power and in fact within that third section, institutional change. A lot of these texts that hadn't been published before end up in that third that third section precisely because they were either given as lectures or in some cases even delivered at board meetings or galas. <laughs> so she found herself or put herself in the position of, of actually challenging the institution while challenging the institution while inhabiting it. And and she has famously said, and, and we talk about this in the book, that, you know, you can only dismantle power by occupying it. And, and that contradiction today is, is really interesting. I also feel like, and, and this is to give a lot away about what's in the book, but she she's writing about the internet in 1994 and how that's going to impact art. She's thinking about from muse to museum in 1990, the way that feminism and artistic practice does impact the institution, what's shown and how there's much more work to be done. She takes up the question of taste and really kind of links taste and, and money in some of the thematic text that she's written, for instance. I mean, everybody knows about bad painting, right? <laughs> from 1978 or I find it really moving that in 1996, in her in her show, A Labor of Love, she really points to the way in which craft is and is not valued within within the kind of art, the fine art sphere. So, I mean, I'll tell you, I'm I'm super biased. I love all of these texts. There were others we could have included, but we felt like all of these did some job of showing what it is to model a position, but a position that doesn't take itself to be final. And that's what is so interesting. Like many of my favorite writers and critics and curators, she's always willing to question herself and point out her own blind spots. 
You just mentioned a whole bunch of things I uh, was hoping we would get to. So in my next few questions, I will inevitably double back a bit. You cited the 10 most pressing issues in the art world today and some uncommon solutions. I'm glad you brought that one up because it's a great opportunity to point out that this was a lecture that was previously unpublished until this book. And a number of quite a, quite a number of the things here have never been published. You mentioned how in that particular essay, there were um, a number of things that not, not only does Tucker talk specifically about power, she uses the word power over and over and over and over again in many essays. She doesn't kind of, you know, wink and nod at it and move on. She makes sure the audiences, which were probably often full of, of white men, heard it. There was one place in that essay, 10 Most Pressing Issues, that I thought to myself that could not be, I mean, maybe the most Okran thing in the whole darn book. She started one of her, her uh, sections in the 10 Most Pressing Issues with, with this sentence, our cultural institutions are not neutral, which echoes the language Mike Morosky and Latanya Autry have used since 2017 in, in urging museum staff to challenge institutional practices. One way of, of thinking of some of the things Tucker writes is that some of the issues she writes are, are still with us here at the end of 2019. Before returning to some successes, are there things she writes about that you think that or hope that this book being out there will will re-foreground? I mean, one reason I'm gravitating to talking about this particular essay is that, as you just pointed out, so many of the questions are relevant and continue to be relevant. I do think she laid, as as others did as well, some some really terrifically profound ground for questions around ethics, around transparency, around questions of labor and value, around viewership. And and I actually think this essay, when you when you read it, both there's a moment for me where I think, oh, we haven't made much progress. This is so these are so relevant. But then you also realize we have in fact made progress and it is due to some of these questions being asked. She ends that essay by coming up with or or kind of the the final section is some uncommon solutions or did I mean impossible? And the the things that she lays out are actually quite practical, but very difficult suggestions, getting rid of some of the the power structures and value structures that are inherent in every transaction in the art world. And most of them are have not been strictly applied, but we have definitely, I think we have definitely made some progress. You know, she, for instance, says, I mean, the very first one is eliminate or ban all slides and reproductions of artwork, artworks for a period of two years, which obviously does not apply to us require all museums to have in residence at all times on a changing basis, one person from a different culture, different area of interest or knowledge, speaking a different language, seeing art from a different point of view entirely, make sure they are very well known and very outspoken. You know, we could really probably deconstruct that and it's problematic in its way, but it also pointed to how white and how male institutions were when she was writing. And we have seen I wouldn't say enough progress by any stretch, but we are seeing people very aware of this as something that has has to be primary in terms of our work. So I do read this essay and think, you know, this is extremely relevant. And on a good day, we have made some progress. And and I'd be curious to know what she what she would think. A kind of um, backdoor example of the progress the sector has made is illuminated by uh, a quotation Tucker includes from a lecture Robert Hughes, the, the time art critic and, and later historian, a quote from a lecture Hughes gave to the Association of Art Museum Directors, a conservative organization, but still not exactly 
an outsider organization, and she quotes Hughes as saying this, museums would be better off to leave complaints about, quote, elitism, end quote, at the door, instead of asking, quote, have we served the needs of one-legged Chicana lesbians today? And I can definitely imagine Hughes saying that in 1995, and I definitely cannot imagine anybody saying that at AAMD in 2019. That's right. And and also, I mean, as you'll have read in the introduction, part of her fire, Marsha Tucker's fire and impetus, I think, for the work she did came from being in grad school and noticing that in the, you know, the Janssen's survey, there was not a single female artist. So yes, in those ways, we have made a, a lot of progress. I think it's safe to say that everyone in the art world right now is kind of holding their breath to, to hope that we're entering a new moment of transparency and sort of ethical behavior. But, you know, there, there's some new problems and wrinkles, too. I think the book also does a really good job of demonstrating how Tucker brought feminism to issues and exhibitions and topics that aren't necessarily about women. Uh, you know, I think this is something that, that artists have, have, have generally done better than uh, maybe non-artists. Larry Pittman's on the brain because there's a retrospective opening uh, later this month. Are there places in the book where uh, you particularly appreciate where Tucker brings her feminism to uh, other systems or areas or issues? I think it's, again, interesting to read the sections and really across the book chronologically to see how what begins as, a, I think, a really timely application of feminism becomes self-aware of its need to expand and to really think about diversity on much larger levels. So without in any way being critical of the earlier work, I think her her, her thinking through and working through feminism in the earlier pieces like women in museums, by the time she's just 10 years down the road, her invocations of feminism will never be without kind of thinking also through the ramifications of race, class, and sexuality, which I find sort of really beautiful in kind of thinking about the evolution. And you think about your, yourself this way too. What what do you hold tight to and how does it change um, in relationship not only to your own thinking, but to the context that, that you're producing. So by the time we move from, say, women in museums from 1972 to the piece that we've talked about before, the 10 most pressing issues, so much work has changed in terms of her feminism being more intersectional. And also, I think, a kind of awareness that she's speaking from a particular point of privilege, even while she's speaking as a woman in a male-dominated field. And I think that that comes through in further essays, too, from Muse to Museum, Who's On First?, all of these texts in one way or another begin to sort of open up to a larger lens of, again, you said it yourself, what she's really talking about all the time is power. So my sense is that her feminism at the end of the day is, of course, about gender and started out as about gender, but it really becomes, she holds most tight to an analysis of and a deconstruction of, of power, both in culture and, and particularly in the in the institutions that house art and artists. One of my favorite examples in the book is an example that reveals how how kind of deep y'all went to make sure representative writing is in the book. Um, it's from an exhibition brochure in 1987 for an exhibition called The Other Man, Alternative Representations of Masculinity. The new museum has a fine digital archive of its past exhibitions, so when we have mentioned exhibitions, we'll include links to the, that digital archive on manpodcast.com. But this is this is an essay in which she takes every feminist idea, it seems like, in the book and throws it at men, and throws them at men and how masculinity has been presented in art. 
and it's a super essay. I'm uh, too young to, to remember the show, which is probably the only time in the history of this podcast I've ever been able to say that. And it, it also got me thinking about the present. I mean, so this is a period, especially in California, where lots of male artists are embracing feminist ideas. It's 1987, you know, a year, year, year and a half after Reagan takes office, two years after Reagan takes office. And after the um, kind of failure of, of the ERA has become evident, and it really points to me how, like many institutions are now, the election of a far right wing figure prompted the the sector to respond. You're saying it yourself. I think what's interesting about an essay like this is that she's a she's asking that feminism be applied beyond questions of 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 gender and also as she says and I was looking for this quote as you were speaking too she wants to make it clear that she's not asking for women to assume or to sort of swap roles with men she's asking for the power structure that supports patriarchy and racism and other things to be interrogated i think that the sort of timeliness of this essay as you as you say in terms of the kind of political moment that she's working in and and actually mirroring it to the one that we're in today demands that feminism be thought less, I think, again, through the lens of, of gender, sexuality solely, and, and much more through kind of questions of access, power, and agency. And that feels very powerful. I just, I feel like my own work has been so impacted by Tucker's and, and, and also, you know, others at the New Museum, Lisa, who followed her in this way. I did a show very explicitly about gender before I left called Trigger, and it, it focused, as I think you know, on on conceptions of non-binary gender and how that impacts how we how we think about representation, and in as I did that show um, and in preparation for it, and actually included in that catalog are reviews of four or reviews is the wrong word, but kind of little portfolios of the receptions of four shows that happened at the new museum that that I think really furthered discussions about not just feminism but these questions of power that you and I are talking about, and each of those shows took it upon itself to question what had come before, which I think is very particular to Marsha Tucker and to the New Museum. But no no exhibition is definitive. It puts itself out as a proposition to be built on and, and actually in many ways to be critiqued and to be questioned and, and, and to be used as a, a place for dialogue and discourse. So my own work as a as a critic and a curator has deeply been informed by this kind of essay, The Other Man, where you use the opportunity, right, to think about what kind of work is being done and what other kinds of work could be done. I, th I think it also points to a real failure of, of criticism. A lot of museum practice has followed in Tucker's footsteps in viewing exhibitions as opportunities for revisionism, not, not to let the exhibition canon stand unchallenged, where when critics, and, and I'm afraid especially New York critics, see or consider an exhibition at, say, MoMA or the Met, they tend to consider it definitive because it's at MoMA or the Met. And I don't know anybody almost in the field who thinks of their exhibitions as being that way. There are inherent limitations regarding to what, you know, regarding what institutions can do and what work is available. And of course, we're learning more about everything all all the time. I mean, as somebody who, who spent a lot of time working on one artist, I'm thoroughly aware of that. We'll, we'll have a link to to the Trigger catalog on, on manpodcast.com. It's one of my favorite recent exhibition catalogs because it's it's a rare example of how kind of a source book as catalog works, how how it, it extends rather than, than ossifies an exhibition for which a lot of the work was very recent or very new. And it was fun to point back at that history and say, this couldn't have happened 
without these things. And that that's, I think, an interesting thing to, to consider. Yeah, it's it's something that contemporary art history hasn't always done a great job of, right? It's true. And, and one thing that's kind of great, too, as I've thought about this project is you and I have both been talking a lot about what it means to put an exhibition forward and, and say this isn't definitive. This is a this is a speculation. This is a prompt. This is a, a question mark. Um, what can we what can we talk about if we if we propose this? But I also feel she was just as open and and you know opposed to authority as she was. She was incredibly loyal to the artists that she believed in. And I think you know so the other side of the coin is you know she she supported artists who often had no market value or were emerging or were incredibly involved in, in the political and social sphere. And she stuck with them often for, for decades at a time. And so this kind of interesting way that you can both hold something open so that, you know, it, it can proceed in its own way organically and to be loyal to individuals who are, who are producing their own bodies of work. It just feels like a really interesting mix as a, as a model. What did you leave out? that you might have hoped to include, or what were the tough cuts? You know, some of the tough cuts were things that were just a little bit more readily available. Um, she did so many, you know, texts that I think we could have included, and we felt like, okay, those are on PDFs, you know, on our website that you can download. And, you know, some of these, like certainly now you can Google anti-illusion and, and get that text. But I remember as a grad student having a really hard time finding it. But we wanted to have a good representation of of artists, of sort of thematic texture, of, you know, questions around the institution. And we did really want to span the entirety of her career. So, I mean, what was really fun is we got to read everything. And so everything felt at times like it was incredibly important. But for instance, you know, we closed the book with a with a piece on Buddhism and, you know, questions around uh, around spirituality, I think, were kind of ever present in her work, but, uh, you know, were not always immediately apparent. We wanted to make sure that that was included as something that she was in incredibly um, involved in and, and thinking about as her life was ending. There was a short text by her on Henri Morton. To me, it was really interesting that she, you know, did write on Henri and thought about her. But I don't have many regrets. I feel like this is a really juicy, satisfying portrait of an amazing woman who did this is just a tiny quantity of what she did the other thing that's really interesting is I kind of got nerdy and thought at one point there, there are so many different versions of some of these that were slightly changed both to reflect I think how an audience would respond but also her own thinking as she took it you know she took a lot of these lectures like on the road to different parts of the country and which is also really interesting you know she was proselytizing contemporary art to people all over the, the United States and internationally too. But so there was a moment where I thought, what would it be like if we showed 10 versions of, you know, who's on first? And we could have done that, but only the really nerdy people would really <laughs> want to see that. But I should just mention that we, we chose the most definitive versions of some of these, but in some cases there were dozens of versions, dozens. I wouldn't have guessed that. That's, 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 that's really interesting. I mean, contemporary Art museum directors don't do that today. There's no need to proselytize. Everywhere has a contemporary art museum. Yeah, and I think she also took it very seriously as part of her mission as an educator to get outside of New York, to get outside of the cosmopolitan areas, and to think about how it's, and it's interesting for me now being in Ohio, 
how you do think differently about the context. I think in a in a good way when you're not just assuming that you're in a in a cosmopolitan city where people know to come into a museum. And and I think some of those encounters were probably really profound. That sets up my my last question perfectly. You are a first time director at a prominent contemporary art institution that is attached to a major American research university, one that, thanks to its previous director, Sherry Gelden, has long been associated with feminism and and making feminist at the heart of its project. Are there things or or elements or ideas in the book that are of particular relevance for you as you start your directorial career? It's funny. I almost feel like I got to write my own code of regulations or something working on this book. And, you know, I've been so fortunate in my life to have been mentored and, and most recently by by Lisa. And now through the spirit of, of Marsha Tucker, who I admired always deeply, but but never met. And so I do, I look at this and I think, oh, well, okay, I can just open this up and remind myself um, how, I, how I should be thinking as, as a new director and as a director of, of a contemporary art space that was and is um, very invested in these questions of, of, of power and really thinking about the ways in which we can offer the best possible platforms to artists and to audiences here. So I'm very excited to take the mantle. I do also feel really fortunate to have somebody like Sherry as a predecessor who has been so gracious and so generous with her, first of all, support, but also sharing institutional history. And I spent a lot of time with her, actually. And, and I, I don't look around and see a lot of models of people handing off institutions with the kind of grace that, that she has done. So I've got my guidebook. I've got my, you know, code of regulations that I helped produce. And then I've got Sherry and Lisa as my, as my you know, North Stars. So I feel pretty pre- prepared. But of course, it's you know, totally daunting to to take something on for the first time, but I couldn't be more thrilled to be doing it. And and I will say that I think the first era of both the Wexner and the New Museum have set me up to to really be thinking diligently about all of these questions and and how we continue to sort of move forward as as we move into the next era. Joanna Burton, thanks so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.